do this. Okay, so I am reading Acts 16, 1 through 3 today. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay. Ooh. It's really hard to talk with a microphone with a mask on. Anybody else have like, you just, you just constantly want like a liter of water in your hand to drink after wearing a mask. I do. Um, anyways, okay, so our passage today, bear with me, Michael, as I make adjustments. Our passage today, obviously, is Acts chapter 16. And I was writing this sermon last week, and that got derailed by current events, and I talked about that. But th- I've been sitting with this passage for several weeks now, and... I see it as so beautiful, and I see it as something that like, people just skim right over. But I, I see what Luke is doing, and I think it's beautiful, and I want to help you see it uh, this morning. So our passage, again, Acts 16, 1 through 3, is very simple. Um, and it's just about Paul taking Timothy along with him, circumcising him, to, and then going off to minister to the uh, Jewish people. But there's some details in here that I find brilliant and beautiful and fascinating. Um, So first off, I want to go back uh, so that we can get to where we are and get a picture sort of of where we are. Um, And I have to ask the question, what is the book of Acts about? What is this book about? The book of Acts is about the expansion of God's kingdom to include Gentiles. That is what it's about. Israel was created from the very beginning to be one people. And God had always been connected to a single race, a single people, the Jewish people, a single nation with whom he exclusively talked to and spoke to from what we know. There's hints that he was doing other things other places like with Melchizedek and stuff. But from what we know, this was God's people and they were called out of everyone else to be separate and different. And their entire purpose as a people was to be what is described in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, the imago Dei, the, the image of God to the world, like a statue made and set for everyone to look at and say, oh, this is what God is like. All of creation, all of humanity, to look at God's people who are living like God and, and acting like God and being gracious and loving, having all the attributes of God, they were set apart to be an imago Dei people that the world would look at and say, that's what God is like. And the whole idea was, as long as they were going to be a blessing to the world, as long as they, with the assistance of the law, fulfilled their destiny of, of being the, the Imago Dei, of being faithful and allegiant to Yahweh um, and living as God's people. But they failed constantly, over and over and over and over. And there's these passages like Malachi. You have constantly these prophets coming out of the, coming out of the desert and they say, this, say things like, oh, that, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. This is God talking through Malachi to the people because they have not been living up to the calling, the mission that they have. Um, he says, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now, he's threatening them. He's saying, you better do better 
or the nations are going to worship me. And that doesn't quite hit right because you're like, well, that's kind of what we want. Don't we want everybody to worship God? No, he was their God. In the ancient Israelite mindset, he was their God. Everyone had their own gods. They were all geographical, but their God was separate. He met them in the wilderness and he moved with them. He was their God and he was the God above all the other gods. And the last thing they wanted was for God to sort of take the covenant and give it to someone else. And he says, if you don't do what is right and if you don't look like me, I will make a covenant with other people and they will worship me on their altars. Their temples will then be dedicated to me. You're going to lose me. (laughs) It's sort of like the threat. You're going to lose me. Um, And so this is like the big threat. And then throughout time, you have Elijah and Elisha saying the same thing. Look, if we don't get our act together, God's going to kick the door open and and bring other people in. Okay? And we're supposed to be a wholly separate people. This is an ancient tribal mindset, and this is how God chose to work. Lo and behold, Israel finally does it. There's one Israelite who fully encapsulates what it means to be the image of God. The Hebrew writer of the book of Hebrews writes and, and, says, and says, Jesus Christ was the fullness of God. Everything that you should think about God, you look at Jesus. However you're supposed to, Jesus is the one who is the full image of God, but he's also the full, full image of what human beings are supposed to be. He's the perfect Imago Dei. And by being the perfect Imago Dei, he's the perfect human and he's the perfect image of God. And so lo and behold, one day, this happens. Jesus is the, 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 with Jesus, the work of Israel is complete. All of it is complete to show the world, to show them what God is like, to show them what true humanity looks like. Um, and now, and only now, can the world be brought in because the whole point of Israel and the covenant and the drive to live this way, to be God's separate people was so that the world would know what God is like so that they can come to God. Because what happens is people try to come to God with the own, their own image of God that they have in their head. And they say, God is like this. And you can't have everyone coming in to Israel without first having a full understanding of what God is like. That's why we have Jesus. Otherwise, Israel is going to project all of their baggage, their political baggage, their social baggage, their um, sort of tribal baggage from the ancient world onto God as they did many times. But with Christ, all of that extra added on stuff is washed away and we see as God really is in Jesus. And so now and only now can Gentiles be brought in. And that's where the book of Acts is about, right there, that part. Jesus has now been revealed as this is what God is like. When you think of God, you think of Jesus naked, shamed man on a cross, taking all of your shame upon you and dying to it and rising to new life and new existence entirely. And so Acts picks up with the people looking in the sky and Jesus ascends and that's where Acts starts. Now, now the next step is to bring in the Gentiles. That's what Acts is about. And so for 16 chapters now, it has been that it has been Christian Jewish Christians trying to assimilate Gentiles into the church. This has never happened. Jews and Gentiles have always been separate, and not just separate, but enemies. They they have never coexisted well. There have always been uprisings and wars and fights and and, and tribalism. They they were enemies to each other. And so then 
we read, um, so let, let's just read a little bit of this passage today, uh, verse one and two. Uh, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. And the believers at Lystra and in Iconium spoke well of him. Okay. I think, and a lot of other scholars say this too, I think this is very anachronistic. Like I, it's, it's interesting that right now we meet Timothy. Um, we have spent 16 chapters planting Jewish Gentile churches mixed together, and we plant them. We get all the way up to chapter 16. Boom. The, the, the church planting mission is now over. And then this guy walks into the story named Timothy. And Timothy like the church, is thought of well-spoken by, by everyone around. Timothy, like the church, is half Jewish, and Timothy, like the church, is half Gentile. We meet this guy, this kid probably, walking in into the storyline, who is a perfect representation of what the church is. Um, he introduces, like, he's introduced at this particular time, and I think it's fully for a theological reason. I think it's a statement about the existence of the church. Because Timothy is like Christ. Christ is the incarnation, the presence of God. God Christ is, enters into the story and, and Christ is the picture of what we're supposed to be. And Timothy is the incarnational picture of what the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's, it's this beautiful picture that like, it's been so hard putting these things together and there's been wars and fights and people have died and suddenly it is completed and Timothy shows up. A representation of what the church is. He's actually... In the world, he would have been an outcast because he doesn't really fit into either culture. But in the church world, he's powerful because he's a representation of everything that we should be. He's a part of two separate cultures and he can speak to both sides. And Timothy actually ends up becoming a pastor. And if you read the book of 1st and 2nd Timothy, Paul is writing letters to Timothy, who's a pastor in the city of Ephesus, dealing with some of the heaviest stuff in the pagan world in bringing these people into the church and navigating it incredibly gracefully. And we'll talk about that at some point. But um, there's a man named, um, African-American scholar named Willie Jennings, who writes in his commentary on Acts, he says this, he says, what every people find most unsettling is a body formed between two peoples, their people and that of another people, especially an enemy. That body suggests betrayal and undisciplined desire and, and, um, and made of, I think it's supposed to be made, maybe even lost, I think I wrote that down wrong. The death of identity, the death of the identity of a story. So like, oftentimes people, especially in the ancient world and still today, people are threatened by things that are made up of two things. We like things that we call pure. Oh, he's a, he's a purebred dog. There's no other dog in my dog. Or we like things, we talk about pure gold, pure silver. It's gold and silver that has no other things in it. It's just one thing. It's one pure thing. And you know what? If we're being honest, as, as humans, if we were to be truly honest with ourselves, we like people that are one thing and we like that thing to be more like us than other things. We like things to be sort of one simple thing that we can put in a box and everyone can take sides and we can know exactly where everybody is. But when something is a mix of these two things, oftentimes it makes us uncomfortable because we demand oftentimes this sort of binary view of the world Um, because we question your allegiance. Are you really with me and my kind? Or are you likely to uh, sort of stray? I mean, this is what caused Japanese internment camps in in, in, in recent history. And our grandparents die. Like, we're, we, we question 
the allegiance of some people. And so I love that Timothy enters in right here as both sides because there is constantly this untrust of each other, this distrust of the Gentiles and the Jewish people constantly with each other. And Timothy is there right in the middle of it to sort of be sort of the center of the whole thing. Um, and Jesus Christ himself, and I, another reason I love it is because it is, it is very much a picture of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is not one thing. Jesus is two things. Jesus is, he's fully God, but he's fully human. And when you say that, people get sort of like crooked-eyed and they kind of look at you like, this doesn't make any sense. I know, exactly. But here's the thing. Throughout church history, when you speak of, of Jesus as just a man or as just God, and you try to explain sort of how the Godhead sort of works and, and, and Christology and how it sort of functions, that's when throughout church history you, have studied, you, have, you sort of fall into heresy. You can't really talk of Jesus as being, um, as being just God pretending to be a human because that's called the heresy of docentism. You can't really talk about Jesus being um, just, um, just a human who sort of pretends to be God. Um, that, that's, that's, not, that's Arianism. Those, these are ancient church heresies for a very, very long time. And we ought to speak of Christ in a way that, 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 that never takes apart sort of these two sides. They are together. They are one somehow. They're coming together of these two things. And in the early church, out of a desire for Christ-likeness, they sort of, um, peoples were bound together in this way that when they entered into the church that they threw off their old identities and they became one thing. And so the church was always made up of many, many things. And there's many practices that they had to bring this together. One of those is the love feast we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. Um, But Paul, at some point here, decides, I'm gonna take Timothy along with me. Um, He said, um, and it says that right there in verse three, Paul wanted to take Timothy uh, along on the journey. And I think that's a good idea because um, Paul is now going to head back and talk to a lot of Jewish people and minister to them about the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. And it's going to be hard to convince them, especially if he has an uncircumcised Gentile along with him. And I think this is where it gets really interesting because Timothy, there's two things really. Timothy is both Gentile and Jew. Um, and so of course he's not circumcised. He has the right not to be as a Gentile. But also... Um, I just had a Rick Perry moment. I had another thought and I just totally forgot where I was going. <laughs> I got thinking about something I was saying and I went somewhere else. So, um, he also, they have decided, oh yeah, I remember the second thing. They have decided already as a church, remember, at the Jerusalem Council. They had already decided Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. There is no reason for Timothy to have to be circumcised to join the church because we're not, not going to do that. Obviously, God is doing something different and they're allowed to join. Instead of, instead of like circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart and they must fa- vow allegiance to Christ, uh, put faith in Christ, and now they can be a part of the church. But here's what happens. Timothy knows that he, this is going to be harder for them because he is there. Timothy knows it's going to be hard to have a good ministry to these people if there is an uncircumcised Gentile standing there in their midst. And so Timothy, being Christ-like, decides, you know what? It's my right to not go through this, endure this kind of pain, but you know what? I'm going to anyways so that I can be a Christ-like example in their presence and in their midst. The early church was very good at at looking at a situation, and rather than claiming my rights and my privileges and the thing that I want over everything else, I don't have to, and so I won't. But the early church, instead of doing that, 
they looked at their life and they say, what here is hindering them coming in? What is hindering the understanding of people that Jesus is Lord? Is there anything in my life that I could give up that would assist them in that? And they would do it instantly, every time. They called these things stumbling blocks. This is the picture of a stumbling block in the Asian world. Like a, a, a stone in the road that is sticking up that causes you to trip. Paul talks about this regularly, removing the stumbling blocks that keep people from coming to Christ. They also referred to it as oftentimes moving mountains. And Jesus refers to this as well. Like moving mountains was the ancient sort of rabbinical way of talking about removing difficulties that were in people's paths. They also talked about making your way straight, making a curved path straight. Stumbling block, making a curved path straight. And these are all the same thing, moving mountains. These are all referring to you removing things that are in the way of other people coming to full knowledge of Christ. And they were constantly searching their lives and their hearts. What do I have that is keeping somebody from understanding? And if there is anything that is keeping someone from entering into this kingdom, I will get rid of it. I will throw it out. Anything that I possibly can. And they would. And you're going to see this. I say this a lot. You're going to see this a lot more when we get to the book of Romans. Paul lays the entire Jewish story on the line. He says, everything that you have been through has been about their inclusion. So you're making a really big deal about all these things that you disagree with, that you think are immoral with the Gentiles coming into the church. But your entire story of all the prophets and the story and everything has been centered on them coming in. So they have to come in. And you will have to deal with it. And you will have to learn to worship together. And then he tells the Gentiles the same thing in reverse. Their entire story, their existence for 1,800 years has been about you and bringing salvation and understanding to you. You're entering into this church. This entire story has led to you entering into this church. So I want to ask you, what are you willing to give up to stay in loving communion with these people? What are you willing to give up? Power, privilege, wealth, what? And he's always asking people to give stuff up so that you can, it's, it's almost as like he's calling us to be Christ-like. Who knew no sin, who ruled on high, who gave it all up to enter into our story for us so that enter into, into, in order to enter into communion with us. And so if you look at the second half of verse three, what did he do? Paul, warned, uh, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. And so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. How did they know his father was a Greek? Well, his skin would have been darker colored and his hair would have been a different texture than the Jewish people there. And so they would have looked at him and said, who is this guy? He can't be in here in our worship gathering. And he would show them that he's circumcised. And they would say, all right, you're good. Carry on. A simple, stupid little thing that cost Timothy a lot of pain but he was willing to do it to minister to other people. And I look at that and I look at my life and I look at the, the state of Christianity in general and I, I can count on no fingers the amount of people I know that would go through something like that so that other people would come closer to Jesus. Nobody would. Nobody that I know. I don't even know if I would. And that's, that's difficult. Because Timothy is sort of the, the Christ figure right here in the story. He's the one that we're supposed to look at and say, uh, how am I compared to this particular character? 
He truly is a pristine example of, of, of a Christ-like Christian and the Christ-like church, a church that is a truly diverse thing, a diversity of thought, diversity of nationalities. We are all over the world. We are in every country. We are not separated by boundaries. We are not invested in the empires in which we live. Here's the other thing about the image of this mulatto boy coming together to be a pastor and leader in the early church, right when the church had been planted. Um, it's that he, he doesn't fit anywhere, but he fits everywhere. It's sort of like, um, like as an American, you have enemies, they tell you. They tell you constantly. As an American, you have enemies. They are in this country, in that country, in that country, and they want to kill you, and they are your enemy. And, and, and you can hold that thought, uh, you know, perhaps the Russians, the North Koreans, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, whatever, and you hold that thought in your head, but then you read the text, and you read the Bible, and you find out, oh, there are Christians there. There are Christians and churches in Iran. There are Christians and churches in Palestine, in China. There are underground churches in North Korea. And so the Jew-Gentile part is like, they're your enemy. And then the church part says, oh, no, no, God has made them your family. There are people in that country that are your family. And my kingdom is worldwide. And my kingdom doesn't, doesn't recognize all of the things that are separating these things. There are this morning somewhere Palestinian Christians and Jewish Christians gathering together in churches. When Christians see each other in other countries... The first thing that they see, that you're a Christian, the first thing they see is a brother or a sister in Christ, one family. And the goal is to remain on that. But pretty soon, we start looking for all the differences. And I've always said to a lot of people, there's so much division in the American church. Um, but oftentimes, we talk about our brothers and sisters in Iraq, the Christians over there, and we talk about how they're under persecution. And we talk about how uh, we want to stop the persecution on them. And I like to point out, I fully agree but I also want to point out that if that church, those people were, were in Florida, in Tampa, and they believed the same things here that they did there, you would call them a heretic because the Christianity is different from yours. We are so quick to make enemies and to look at all the little things that make us enemies. And the whole time we're doing this, the ecclesial gathering, the gospel is, is like shining and, and, and threatening to destroy and remove all these boundaries and all these separations and all these things that drive us apart. You have Jewish brothers and sisters. You have German and Palestinian and, and, um, and Chinese brothers and sisters, North Korean brothers and sisters in the same family that cannot be your enemy because God is there, Christ is there, gathering his family, doing work. And one of the intentions of the church is to break down culturally constructed divisions, always. When an Israeli Christian and a Palestinian Christian come together, they meet as siblings. That's what they do. Because the, 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 the church tears down these divisions. And none of these divisions are actually real. They are all invented by us. And through the church, God is working to remove them. And God intends, at the end of things, to remove all of our divisions and to make us one people again. That is literally the revealed work of God through Paul, through the Apostle Paul. In the ancient world, there was this thing called the love feast. I've talked about, I'm sorry, the Aaronos feast in the, in the Gentile world. And it was this huge festival that they would hold several times a year. Everyone would bring food and contribute to this great, great feast. And mostly it would be the rich, very powerful people that would provide most of it because their honor goes up when they do this. They're called benefactors. And um, sometimes this would even happen weekly in certain cities like Pompeii. But it was just a time when everyone would sort of celebrate Rome, but they would be separated by these tables 
depending on like your wealth and your status. And it was a display of unity, but it was also a display of like the sort of the Roman caste system, if you will, that was there. And it made it obvious the divisions. And so you know what the Christians did? Every time that these cities did an Aronos feast, the Christians did an Agape feast, a love feast. And they would do this outdoors as well. And they would gather everyone in their church community together for a feast. And the world would be walking by on the way to their divided, separated feast, separated by honor and privilege. And they would walk by the Christians having their agape feast, which also having communion as well in the midst of this whole thing. And they would see at one table the wealthy, the poor, slave and the free, men and women, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, Greek, all at one table sharing the same loaf of bread, the same jar of wine, the same food, sitting with each other. And it was this shocking thing that they would see. Paul, at one point, when he talks about, uh, he talks about sort of this Aaronos feast, and Paul says uh, in the Corinthian church, and he writes to them because he hears that you guys have started having your feasts look more like the secular feasts of the day. The rich aren't sharing their food, but are eating in sort of little exclusivist groups by themselves and eating it really quickly so that they don't have to share the, the, the good food with the poor who are there. And the poor are receiving next to nothing and the leftovers and the scraps. And, and we can picture sort of like this big spread at the rich table and this little sort of card table where the, where the poor are sitting. And the world, the patterns of the world are starting to creep into the church and they're separating the people in the church And Paul lets him have it. He said, this is not how the church functions. We will not have any of this. And it was clear that when these divides happened in the church, the rich and poor, the popular and the outcast, the smart and the uneducated, it was no longer a church at that moment. The second these separations all happen, it's no longer even a church. Because the church is supposed to be everyone everywhere gathered as equals under one single king, everyone with the same vocation, the same calling to be the presence of the Imago Dei in the world. And these divisions that we allow to sort of separate, these are all human-made. We invent them and we bring them into the church to divide us all up. But the important work of the church is to help people shift their identity from however they see themselves to a part of a a people who come together to be the presence, the faithful presence of Jesus Christ and to tell his story. And when you tell the story of Jesus with your life, when you act out his life in your own, the other stories begin to fall away. Suddenly nobody, nobody cares what your accomplishments are, your wealth you've accumulated, the ways that you failed. We are all one. And we become one people on the path to goodness, forgetting everything that has come behind, that is from behind us, even, even to the point of deconstructing and naming all of the ways that those old ways have hurt us as a people. But Timothy represents sort of that in-between. And so whenever I, whenever I see him, I picture him as like this, coming together that can speak to both sides. He's the one that surprises you by just speaking fluent Hebrew and then stopping and turning around and speaking fluent Greek. You know what I mean? You all have that friend that you went to that Chinese restaurant and they're just like speaking Mandarin. And you're like, whoa. And it's shocking. Like, this is Timothy. He transcends one particular people. 
He represents the shifting of identity, the throwing off of cultural pride and cultural supremacy so that, so that you could, that, that all of that that comes along with entering into the church. It's a dangerous person to be. Sometimes people look at you and they say, aren't you American? And you can kind of say, yeah, I mean, legally, yeah. Yeah, but I'm more than that. This person that you claim to be your enemy, I'm bound to them through my faith. And so I don't see them as my enemy. I might see them as an estranged family member, but I'm working on it. And I'm trying to mend it. So think of Tiffany, uh, Tiffany, Timothy, not Tiffany, Timothy. And read the letters of Timothy at some point that Paul wrote to him. And look at how he's navigating it all. It's quite brilliant. It's quite beautiful. He's a, he's a, he's a beautiful picture of, of Christ. So that's what I have for you guys today to ponder. Um, that part of the work of the church is to remove all the boundaries that, that separate us because they shouldn't. And I don't mean remove them like ignore them. I mean remove them. Search our hearts and rip them out. These things that hold us with such like an idolatrous hold. We can't forget to do that work of moving towards our enemies, to embracing the stranger and, and making space for the outcast. Um, and so right now, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I want you guys to join me in our collect prayer today, um, if you would. I, have, I, had, uh, I had one last quote. I'll, quote. I'll throw it in from a church historian that beautifully describes the church. He says, within their own limits, they had solved almost by the way of social problem, of the social problem by, by which Rome, um, by, I'm sorry, I can't read today, by the way, the social problems which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted women to their rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secrets of the revolution is that it is selfishness of race and class was forgotten in the supper of the Lord. And a new basis for society found in love, in, in love of the visible image of God in men for whom Christ died. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people that you've gathered here. I pray that we would begin to do the difficult work of, of moving towards those who have declared us their enemy. I pray that we would find common ground in the things of Christ and that these things in Christ would indeed begin to replace and take apart and deconstruct all of the idolatrous cultural things that we have brought in to your church. I pray that you would bring healing and grace and unity, um, not just here, but in our community, in our states, in our cities, in our world. Do it through your church. Let us find the courage to stand up and repent and to start being the people you have for us to be. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. If you guys would stand with me and do one last collect prayer, we do this right now to take the place of communion, which we aren't taking right now until we can do it for real together. So do this nice and loud with me. Emmanuel, who became flesh and dwelt with us, be with us in our waiting, in our sorrow and in our joy. As we live within the expectancy of your goodness, Bind our hearts together in unity and peace as we carry your presence in the world, bringing your kingdom to earth. Grace and peace, love you all. And uh, I will continue to pray for you, pray for each other, lift each other up. And uh, let's spend some time catching up. If you would, outside. Thank you.